0: Excuse me, Ephesians 2 and Romans 5. Today I'm beginning a seven-week series through what I've called Back to the Basics, and each series is its own kind of theme. And this 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 morning we're thinking about salvation, and, and e- each one of these, each week could be seven weeks on its own, um, but I felt like it might be good for us to just to return to the basics. No one is too you know, old in the Lord but they don't need to go back to the basics from time to time. And so, as I said, we've just celebrated communion here this morning. We've seen it visualized, the gospel visualized. It's important for us to see it from the Word of God, the truths that are taught. And so, this morning I'm focusing on salvation as deliverance from the bondage of sin by the grace of by grace through faith in Christ. Let me say that again. Salvation is the deliverance from the bondage of sin by grace through faith in Christ. When the church deliberately takes time to examine the gospel, wonderful things can happen. In fact, that's what happened in the circumstances that led to the great awakening here in America. When the New England churches began to think about salvation as God's merciful act to make sinners acceptable with God, the Holy Spirit just broke everything wide open. Jonathan Edwards was the pastor of the Congregational Church in Northampton, Massachusetts, in the early 1700s. In fact, congregationalism in those days was based on a parish system that was tied to the civil government and the community structure. In other words, your civil rights were also connected to your church membership. How would you like that? Well, the question is, how did one become a church member in those days? Well, membership came through infant baptism by the church. It was a right that was Uh, given to believing families that they could have their children brought into the covenant community of faith. That's how it was done in those days. When you came of age, you had also the right to participate in the Lord's table only if you could get evidence of God's converting work within your heart. But what's the problem with this? That worked really, really well for the first generation or so. And then, after a while, another generation came that did not know God. They knew the ordinances of ritual, but they did not know God. The unconverted were attending the services, but they were not allowed to participate in the communion. And when they married and had children, they demanded of their leaders that they could baptize their children into the church. It was a real mess, a real complication. So Jonathan Edwards' grandfather on his mother's side developed a plan called the Halfway Covenant for his parish. It was an attempt to create the opportunity that if someone participated in the communion in the Lord's Table, they might have the opportunity to experience God's grace by the converting work of doing the ritual. That's dangerous. Because growing up in a church participating in the elements doesn't make a person a Christian. I think we've all heard this before sometime or another. Maybe an evangelist comes into the church and says, you know, just because you're standing in a garage doesn't make you a car. It is possible to be in your church all your life and not be a Christian. And that happened to my father. He grew up in a church thinking he was a believer, going through the rituals, but yet he was not a believer. He was like Judas, actually with the Lord, but not known by the Lord. And that's a problem. But thankfully, God's Holy Spirit worked in his heart, and at 16 years of age, he became a believer. He was born again, and all of us have to be born again. There has to be a work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts by God. Edwards recognized the problem of the halfway covenant that had been created. And so what he did was he preached a series of sermons on justification by faith alone, that your acceptance with God is formulated by Him and Him alone. And as people listened to those sermons, God and the Holy Spirit moved in people's hearts so they recognized that the mercy of God was critically necessary for them to be born again. People were weeping in the services, begging God to save them. We can have a misunderstanding of salvation even today. The church can be filled with wheat and tares not all who profess Christ are of Christ. There has to be a humble awareness that God's Holy Spirit is doing a work deeply within your heart. There has to be a being born again. The facts of the gospel might be understood, but without the Holy Spirit, there is no being saved. There is no born again. There are many ways that you can talk about being saved in the Bible. I know that there's a variety of terms that are often used. There is redeemed, there is adopted, there is freed, there is repentance, there is faith, and now there's blind. I was once blind, but now I see. These are phrases that we use from time to time to talk about being saved. So this morning, I, I want to think about that a little more intentionally From two passages I mentioned, Romans 5, Ephesians 2, we're starting in Romans 5, verses 6 through 11. Now, it's a very familiar text, very familiar text with a great promise. And because the promise and the love of God is so central, there is often an overlooked truth that judgment is coming. It's coming on all of mankind. There is no way that we can get out of it. And we can't not know the grace of God if we don't know how great our personal offense is to Him. What is the offense? How are we marked? How are we described? How is the judgment seen? In verse 6, Paul says that we were weak. We're weak. In verse six, again, he says that we are, we're ungodly." In verse eight, he says, "We're sinners." In verse 10, he says, "We're actually enemies of God." And the problem with being the enemy of God is that God will not let our stubbornness go unjudged. God is going to destroy all competing gods. And all of these words speak of our lack of ability, our unattractiveness, our impurity, and our opposition to God. And these are deeply seated character flaws. They're not just like little oopses, like these are serious problems. We may have Natural ability to respond to God, but there is a stubbornness within our hearts that makes it nearly impossible if it wasn't for the grace of God to respond to Him. The stubbornness of sin, the bondage of sin is so dire, we need a Savior to step into our lives and redeem our souls. If you are an enemy of God, you cannot love God whom you hate. You and I can't make somebody love God for who He is. And so you know what we do at times? We offer to people salvation by overcoming their resistance to selfishness. We think of things that are attractive to them and we say, well, you know, if you could accept God's gift for you, then there might be the promise of a better life for you. You will have a home in heaven. There's mansions, there's glory in the hilltops for you. You might even be in a better financial situation. And the reason these things work with us is that they appeal to our selfish nature. And you and I have a stubbornness to come to God for who God is. He is the creator of all the world and His authority reigns supreme. And we don't like that. We are stubborn people. This inability is caused by the bondage of sin. Drop down to verse 12, please. In Romans 5, verse 12, he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. There is a bondage that was created by Adam that has been transferred to all of humanity. We are all sinners. We're all enemies of God. We cannot get away. We're in bondage to sin. And God is sending a cataclysmic and instantaneous judgment upon the world in which none of us will escape. God's wrath is coming, he says in verse 9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him by the wrath of God. Yes, those who believe are rescued from the wrath of God, but the wrath of God is coming. That's not PC. I know. It's not warm and fuzzy. But it's the truth. In recent days, we've seen a lot of burning out of control in various parts of our communities, other parts of the country. It's not necessarily anything new, just that there's a lot of people around these fires now and a lot of damage and a lot of loss. But during the pioneer days, as, as wagons would travel west, prairie fires could be seen in the distance, and if they didn't take action immediately, they could very quickly be engulfed by the flames and be burnt. So what they did is they would stand with their backs to the wind and they would light a flame and allow a burned place to open up and they would take all of their li- livelihood and enter into the burned area so that when the fires came through they would be saved. The fire would not burn in the same place twice. And it's in the same way that God's judgment is coming on all of us. None of us are going to be spared. And we cannot save ourselves, yet that there is one place where God's judgment has already burned. It's burned on the cross of Calvary, so that all who take refuge in the cross will be spared the judgment to come. It says, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. It's in the cross of Christ. It's the humble awareness that we are in a bondage that we cannot deliver ourselves from. We are in a stubbornness that is so resistant to God, we desperately need Him to break us. In this text also, yes, you see that judgment is coming upon the world, and this is the essence of being saved by God from the bondage of sin, by grace through faith in Christ, God's salvation for sinners has come. In verses 8 and 9, Paul shows us that in spite of our strong stubbornness, our willfulness, Christ died for us. That means that God stood in our place. We deserve that fire to be poured upon us and God stood in our place in his son and he endured that wrath. And he did this to deliver sinners from the bondage of sin. It was Jesus' sacrificial blood that was poured out to appease God's wrath. God did this so that we might draw close to Him if we humble ourselves. God draws close to those who are humble and a contrite spirit. But if you do not repent, God's wrath still abides on you. This is the gospel truth. John 3:36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. John Wesley famously described how the Holy Spirit moved within him to soften his heart, to to remove that stubbornness. And he described it in this way. He said, I was beating the air, being ignorant of the righteousness of Christ, which by a living faith in him brings salvation to everyone that believes. I sought to establish my own righteousness And in this vile state of bondage to sin, I was indeed fighting continually, but I was not conquering, because he was stubbornly resisting the grace and mercy of Christ. He was trying to be good on his own without humbling his heart. This is what he says, in the evening I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt in my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death amen. That is grace. That is movement of the Holy Spirit to create a softening, an ability to identify with Christ alone. Not Christ in me, but Christ alone. God's love is shown in the giving of His Son so that all who are under God's judgment might not perish but have everlasting life. That is the essence of John 3.16. Judgment is fallen upon the world. Your only hope out of that judgment is the softening work and responsiveness to the Holy Spirit. Looking to the cross, looking to that snake that's hanging there, your substitutes. What does faith have to do with salvation? That's a lot of grace and a lot of seeing, but it's important for us to understand how God works through the heart. Let's turn over to Ephesians chapter 2, please. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 to 10. Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Frank Sinatra said, I did it my way. That appeals to our stubborn, independent nature, and that is a problem. Humility that recognizes the exclusive grace of God in the heart removes the disposition of pride. Pride has to go, or there cannot be any sal- saving. Now, in this text, there is a little inclusive, inconclusiveness in some of the words that were used by Paul. I don't know if he did this on purpose to create debate in centuries to come. But in Ephesians 2, verse 8, what does it refer to? It is the gift of God. Does it refer to the grace? Does it refer to the faith? Does it refer to both? What do we do? I can only give you my humble opinion, but also compare Scripture with Scripture. By thinking about what other Scripture texts says, I do believe that Paul is getting at that the faith itself is a gift of God. Because if we are truly in the bondage of sin, we are bound. Titus 3, I think, is the comparative Scripture that we can turn to. Titus 3, verses 4 and through 6. Paul says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we may become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There is a renewal action of the Holy Spirit that even lights the eyes to be able to see Christ for who he is. Faith is planted, and it moves towards Christ. I don't know how this works. But I think it's important for us to realize that we can talk about salvation in a way that actually paints us as the hero of the story. And we have to be so careful. Talking about salvation, I know, can be difficult because I just had a little one in my house say that she prayed and asked Jesus to be her Savior. She doesn't know all the technicalities of it, and I understand that. And I'm so thankful that she is a child of God. I mean, when a person is born again, we don't know all that happens. I mean, just as a baby is born, I mean, it just happens. A baby is born. But there's a whole lot of things going on around that baby as it's being born. But the baby just thinks it was born, it cries you know, the old, you know, hang the baby up and slap it on the butt, you know, and it cries. They don't do that anymore, I don't think. But the reality is there's nurses, there's mom is there's doing work, and if dad's lucky, he can participate, and, you know, and there's all this going on around, and the baby's born, and it doesn't know that there's all this going on around it. In the same way, being born again seems like something you're involved in, but as you come to grow in your age with the Lord, more and more you become aware that it was nothing of me and all of him. We don't want to make faith be a work. And for faith not to be a work, it must originate with God. And so when the Holy Spirit convicts within a person's heart and when that truth about your human condition, your stubbornness is suddenly like you're aware that you're stubborn and there's a movement taking place, there's an existential act. Yes, you're moving, you're believing, you're choosing, you're deciding, but there's something even pre-theoretical, there's something happening there that takes away the glory from you and gives it to God alone. I know there's innocent ways to talk about getting saved, and I don't quibble on that. But there are sinister ways to talk about faith in which God's glory is in question, and we don't want to go there. If your vote is equal to God's, then you're boasting in yourself. That's a dangerous place to be because if you're boasting in yourself, then God's not going to tolerate that boasting. He doesn't share his glory with you or another being. And your bondage is a sin which requires God to deliver you. I've been talking about this big idea from these two texts, that salvation is deliverance from bondage of sin by grace through faith in Christ. Martin Luther says this of his salvation. He said, I was a good monk. And kept my order so strictly that I could say that if ever a monk could get to heaven by monkery, I was that monk. All my companions in the monastery would confirm this. And yet my conscience would not give me certainty, but I always doubted and said, you didn't do that right. And the more I tried to remedy an uncertain, weak, and troubled conscience with human traditions, the more I daily found it more uncertain, weaker, and more troubled. And this, listen to this. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteousness lives, the righteous person lives, by a gift of God. Namely, by faith. And here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise through the open gates. You know, maybe you're like Martin. You see that you are a sinner, but you try to renovate your life, you try to remedy it on your own. One of two things is going to happen. you're going to come to one of two conclusions. If you're trying to remedy yourself, you're going to come to the conclusion, I don't need a Savior. Or you're going to come to the conclusion, I do need a Savior. I can't do this by myself. And until you come to that, I do need a Savior, you are in the bondage of sin and God's wrath remains upon you. The conclusion of the service, I want to make myself available to any with whom the Spirit has been dealing with this morning. I want to share with you the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and lead you to a place where you are not depending on your own righteousness, you're trusting fully in His and in His alone. Maybe you're a professing Christian, but you know in your own heart, you know you're a sinner. But then you're trying to justify yourself by all these things. You've got to be broken again by the gospel so that you can grow. You'll never be able to be good enough with God. God is good for you. You can't grow under the weight of expectation, but you can grow under the weight of grace. Even get your eyes off of your own profession of faith. I struggled with the assurance of my salvation every time I thought back to the year I was saved at the age of a tender age of three and a half. And I suddenly realized, hey, I'm trying to trust in that for my salvation. I'm remedying my heart through that. I need to look to the cross today. That's living by faith. Any attempt to remedy yourself will bring one of these two conclusions. Salvation is a deliverance from the bondage of sin by grace through faith in Christ. I invite you to see...